and study the Bible. What is at stake when it comes to our Bible reading? Only truth and joy. If we do not read the Bible correctly, we will not only be led into error, but we will not be able to enjoy God the way that He always meant for Himself to be enjoyed. Now, last week we spent a lot of time reviewing some of the things that we've gone over recently, but today I want to talk about some new things. I want to talk about mainly two, two areas, or two, two topics. Recognizing and dealing with figurative language in a passage, and then the process of interpretation. We have gone over the overall method for studying the Bible, that is observe, interpret, and apply, but let's actually look at that interpretive process today, and Lord willing, that's what we'll do. Let's pray as we get started. <clears throat> Holy Father, I pray that you would bless this time. Give me the words, God. Help me to be able to explain clearly. And I pray, Lord, that I would be faithful in uh, the way that I explain your word and the way to read it. And give uh, the listeners understanding and, and give me understanding in this, God, and show us more the, the grandeur of your word. pray this in your name. Amen. Okay. Now, two weeks ago, I stressed to you the importance of not spiritualizing passages in the Bible. That is, not making something symbolic or allegorical when God never meant it to be. But how do you know when God did mean something to be figurative or to be symbolic? By the way, when I say figurative, I mean that the words mean something different than their literal meanings. How do you know when that's happening? Sometimes, you will hear preachers stress that we need a literal interpretation of the Bible. They say you've got to take the Bible literally. So, are we supposed to take the whole Bible literally? And if not, which parts of the Bible? How do we know when to take a literal interpretation and when to take a figurative one? I think the answers to these questions are actually simpler than we might think at first, because you and I actually make judgments about whether something is literal or figurative all the time. It's part of our daily communication. We use both types of language, that is figurative and literal, and if we're communicating effectively, the person listening always knows which type we're using and how to interpret it. For example, let's say you get the following as a text message or email from a family member. Just that top one there. This is the text message you get. I won't be able to pick you up from work today. Now, should you take this statement literally or figuratively? <laughs> okay, uh, can you explain? Okay, yeah. So, the, in, um, in our language, pick up, in its most literal sense, yes, it does mean to actually pick somebody up, but that, that word has come to mean also to, um, I guess the, the, the figurative interpretation has even become part of the literal interpretation. That is, that you actually are going to, um, going to get the person and bring them back. So, even though, yes, that is in some sense figurative, this really is just a literal statement. I'm not going to be able to pick you up from work today. You're not going to have to, you're not going to, have to take time to, to question which parts, of these, uh, which parts of this phrase 
um, have different meanings. You're not going to ask yourself, well, what does work mean? What way should I understand work? Or what does today mean? Does today refer to 24 hours? Or does it refer to some, some short period of time? You don't even think about that. You understand very quickly this very straightforward statement. But if let's say you got a different text message or a different email, and it's the bottom one. The eagle has landed. Should you take that literally or figuratively? Ah, okay, we'll get to context in just a minute, but um, what would be the only context that would ask you or would require you to take this literally? Oh, even, even then that might be a little bit different. The only way that this could make sense literally is if in context there was an actual eagle you were talking about, right? Unless you're a park ranger and you're like, the eagle has landed, or something like that. You won't be able to take this literally. This has to be figurative. And of course, we're going to need some help to understand what this actually means. And a lot of that is going to depend on the context. But even without context for a second, what could or what probably does this statement, the eagle has landed, mean? Okay, it could mean that a dignitary, some important person has arrived. What else could it mean? Yeah, Dwayne. The name of an air, so like an airplane has arrived. Okay, yeah, so if there's an airplane that was called the Eagle or something like that, then it could mean that that had arrived. What were you going to say, Roy? Very good. So we recognize there's actually a, an illusion in this statement. Now, unless we're actually going back in time, this isn't going to be talking about a moon landing. Let's say a family member just texted this to you. You're probably thinking, all right, something has arrived or some great accomplishment has taken place. Because he's using this, those same words that someone else had used about the moon landing. But again, you won't be able to know specifically what that person is talking about with this figurative expression unless you have some context. If you have some other emails or other text messages that, that came before this, something like um, somebody has a, a baby that's supposed to arrive soon, and then they text you the eagle has landed. Oh, you know exactly what that means. It means the baby has arrived. The baby was born. Or if somebody was going in for a job interview or is trying to go for a promotion, and then he texts you this or emails you this, then you know exactly what that's talking about. You have to have some context to be able to interpret these figurative expressions. So we all actually have experience in our day-to-day -day interactions sensing the difference between literal and figurative statements, even when they appear right next to each other. You might get, I don't know how, how common this would be, but you could get a text message, say, that combined both of these statements. And you would know the straightforward literal meaning of the first statement, I won't be able to pick you up from work today, doesn't apply to the second part, the eagle has landed. There's some figurative thing being said in the second part and something more literal said in the first part. But our minds have been trained to discern the difference. This is actually how, is very much how we recognize figurative sections of the Bible. Just like in regular literature or even in daily communication, our default ought to be a literal interpretation unless 
that literal interpretation does not make sense. That's when you look for a figurative or symbolic interpretation using what? I heard somebody say it? Context. You've got to have the context. Very good. So let me show you that in the next slide. Our default understanding should be the literal. We should always be thinking, okay, I'm looking for a straightforward meaning. That's normal in communication. But if it doesn't make sense, then I'm going to look for a figurative interpretation using the context to interpret it. Now, in case the word sense makes you feel a little bit uncomfortable because you say, well, what makes sense to one person might not make sense to another person. Let me summarize the principle in another way. When you read the Bible, you should take the literal interpretation unless you have a strong reason not to. Unless you have a strong reason not to, take the literal interpretation. And when I say strong reason, I mean evidence from the passage. Evidence from the passage and or context that shows you a figurative interpretation is warranted. Now you might be saying, hmm, this sounds very abstract, David. Uh, what are some examples? Can you give me some situations where I, can, where I know there's evidence in the passage that needs to be figurative? Well, that's a great question. And it's one that actually our book's author, Howard Hendricks, takes some time to explore and addresses at some length. He gives 10 situations in which you should use the figurative rather than the literal interpretation. And I want to look at those situations. The first five we're going to take a longer look at, and we'll look at some biblical examples. And the second five we're going to go over a little bit more briefly. I've made a few alterations to the categories that he gives, but mostly this comes straight from the book that we've been, um, we've been basing our lessons on. Let's look at the first five situations where figurative interpretation is required. We'll go through each one. So the first is, use the literal sense unless there's a strong reason not to do so. I already expressed this to you, but this basically is the, the summary statement for everything else that comes out. Bottom line, you've got to be looking for, there must be a strong reason for you to take a figurative interpretation in the passage. Otherwise, you use the literal. What about the second one? All right, the second situation is, use the figurative sense when the passage tells you to do so. Use the figure of sense when the passage tells you to do so. You may find this a little bit odd, but actually, many, maybe even most, figurative passages in the Bible will tell you to take them figuratively. Now, they won't actually say, there won't be words there that say, read me figuratively, but there will be something almost equivalent. How might a passage tell you that you should read it symbolically? Yeah. Right, it might um, give you an explanation. It says this figure of speech means, or um, something like that. How else might it do it? Yeah. This is a symbol. Yeah, this is a symbol or um, sign. Yes, especially in Revelation, other parts it says, and then I saw this sign. Bing! It already tells you. You should take the next part figuratively, or maybe that might be a statement that comes at the very end of something that he sees. He says, "Here's a sign." So. If we, if we see something like this is a symbol or this is a sign or if an explanation is given around that picture, so even if it doesn't say the word sign but someone begins to interpret it like Steve was getting at, then that's telling you you want to take that passage figuratively. You want to interpret it figuratively. Let's look at two examples of this. Open your Bibles and turn to Revelation 12. Revelation 12, 1 to 2. <clears throat>
This one should be abundantly clear. Revelation 12, 1 to 2. I'll read the verses. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. And she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. Now, when we come to interpret this section, we should not be thinking literally that, there's some, that there is a, um, a literal woman who's clothed with a literal sun, and, and she's got this moon, that somehow she's this uh, cosmic woman who is able to have all these things around her. And we can see clearly that this is figurative. Why? Emma? And his sign. It starts with the word sign. So you know right away you've got to be interpreting it figuratively. That's what I mean. Let's look at another example from earlier in Revelation. Revelation 1. Very end of Revelation 1. Verses 12 to 16. This is at the very beginning where John is starting to receive his vision. He hears a voice, and verse 12 describes what he sees when he turns around to, um, to look at where the voice is coming from. Verse 12, Revelation 1. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. Stop right there for a moment. So looking at this description of this person, it's identified as one like the son of man, or like a son of man. Is this something that is only literally significant, or is it figuratively significant? Should we take a symbolic interpretation here, or is this just literal? Okay, well, like is certainly um, a word that we want to notice because it's, it's not saying that this is exactly how it is, but here's the best way that I can describe it. But there's also something else. It's much like the idea that we're being told to take it symbolically. Very good. George is looking at the context here, which of course is always important. Just a few verses down, we get part of that picture explained to us. So look down at verse 20. Remember, one of the things that he saw were, were seven lampstands, and he also saw stars in the Son of Man's hand. And verse 20 says, As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands seven lampstands are the seven churches. So we're getting uh, the same thing like we saw in the first example. The passage is telling us that we're looking at something figurative because it explains part of the picture to us. It tells us what those things signify. This is what I mean by using a figurative interpretation when the passage tells you to do so.
What else? What are some other situations we might come up against where we should use figurative? Let's go to the third one. Use the figurative sense when a literal meaning is impossible or absurd. Okay, this might be a little bit obvious. You might be saying to yourself, duh, when we actually look at the passages, but it's important. It's very much in line with the idea of whether something makes sense literally or not. If it can't be true literally, or if it would be silly if it were, you should interpret it figuratively. Let me show you two examples of this. Go back to Luke in your Bible. Luke 22. Luke 22, 19. This is during the Last Supper of Jesus and the disciples. Luke 22, 19 says this. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Okay, now you probably know that this verse, historically, has been the subject of much contention because some, Catholics especially, take Jesus literally here. The bread actually is or becomes Jesus' body, and you literally eat Jesus when you take communion, a rite which they call the Eucharist. But, paying particular attention to the grammar here, how is a literal meaning impossible for this passage? Yeah, Rob. Exactly. That's actually what I'm getting at with the grammar because he says, this is my body. But his body is already there. It's separate from that. So if the only way it could possibly make sense for this to be figurative would be for, or for it to be literal would be for him to say, this will be my body whenever you do this later or something like that. But he says, this is my body. But that is impossible because his body was already separate. So he wasn't tearing off pieces of himself. He was just giving them bread. So literally this would be impossible. So we must understand this in a figurative way. Jesus is saying something um, figurative about himself. But we shouldn't be too surprised by this when he says this is, even though he's not talking literally, because he does the same thing in many parts of his ministry. And that's actually, um, the other example I have for you is just like that. Turn over to John. John chapter 4. This is Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well. Let's look at verses 13 and 14 of John chapter 4. John 4, starting in verse 13. Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water, referring to the water from the well, will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Okay, why is a literal interpretation of Jesus' words impossible here? But Jesus seems to be promising that the water that he's going to give is going to make it so you never thirst. Yeah, it's 
Yeah, it definitely has to be figurative because the experience of all Christians, and even Jesus himself, is that you still get thirsty, right? Jesus is asking for water here, and if he's promising a fountain of living water that comes from himself, then why would he be thirsty? This obviously can't be literal, and there can't be a literal fountain coming out or coming up inside of you of literal water, because then we'd be oozing or springing water out of ourselves, and that would be just silly. That's not what Jesus means here. However, an inexhaustible source of water is a good analogy for what Jesus wants to present about himself. So that's why he uses it. The woman is stuck on the literal idea of water, even after Jesus says this. He says, I'm promising you water that you'll never thirst again. She says, oh, give me that water. I don't want to keep coming back to the well. She's stuck on the idea of literal water, but Jesus means something different. He's just using it as a way to describe himself. So in these verses, we're seeing this idea that we want to use the figurative sense when the literal meaning is impossible or absurd. I've looked at three situations. Let's look at the fourth. Fourth situation, use the figurative sense if a literal meaning would involve something immoral. Taking it literally would involve some sort of sin or something immoral. Hendricks provides a good example of this in, his, in, in, in the book that he writes, and we actually can turn over just a few chapters to John 6. You notice a lot of similarities between John 6, verses 53 to 55, and actually the passage we just looked at. John 6. <clears throat> Jesus is talking to the crowds here. Starting in verse 53, Jesus says this. Jesus, so Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Okay, why would these words, taken literally, would actually be immoral for Jesus' listeners? Yeah, Michelle. Exactly. If we're going back to the understanding that they would have had from the law, there are a number of violations here. Now, I couldn't actually find a, a section of the law that said you're not supposed to eat humans, but I think that was a given. It certainly wasn't under the, uh, the list of clean foods. But secondly, you were never supposed to drink blood. God always said the life was in the blood. So he couldn't have meant that literally. And of course, to actually be able to have Jesus' flesh, he would have to die. He'd either have to be killed or he'd have to kill himself which was certainly forbidden in the Old Testament law. So we can't mean something literal here because that would involve sin. So it must be figurative. Well, then what does Jesus mean? What does Jesus mean by, you must eat my, eat my flesh and drink my blood? Now, how are we going to find this out? Got to look at the context. So let's do that. Looking at the context here, we'll find that Jesus is not pointing to communion as some have erroneously claimed, but that he's comparing eating with something else. What is he comparing eating to here? Yeah, Brian. Belief. Yes. This is actually about belief, not actually eating food or drink. And the key explanation, or the key part of this explanation is in verse 26, verses 26 to 29. Just go back there a little bit with me. Jesus says there in verse 26, Truly, truly, I say to you, 
You seek me not because you saw signs, because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Remember, this is after he's done the miracle where he was able to multiply uh, the loaves and fishes. And so he says, you're, you're coming back to me because you had that literal food and you thought that was great. He says, do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father God has set his seal. Therefore they said to him, What shall we do, so that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him. You believe in him whom he has sent. So just like the woman at the well, Jesus is trying to point his listeners away from temporal things that ultimately don't last or satisfy, like food, and towards himself. Like the woman at the well also, the crowd has a hard time turning away from the present world. Notice what they do in verses 30 to 31, right after that section we just read. It says, work for the food that doesn't perish. Believe in me. In verse 30 they said, "Uh, what do you do for a sign that we may believe in you? And then in verse 31, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it was written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. So they're still thinking like, "Mm, we want that bread from heaven. We want We want to have that special food provided by God, just like in the Old Testament. But Jesus Jesus is essentially saying to them, you think having earthly food provided for you is great? I'm so much greater than that. I am the heavenly food provided for you, not merely to sustain you in this world, but to sustain you eternally. Believe in me, and you'll get that food. So this passage is another example of where we see a strong reason, or good reason, not to take it literally, but figuratively. Yes, Dwayne. Yeah, it's a good observation, Duane. There are multiple pieces of evidence in this passage that Jesus is presenting something figuratively. But using literal, using physical food was a, a very um, helpful analogy for what Jesus was trying to express. The, the crowd didn't want to see that. They weren't tracking with that, or many in the crowd anyways. <clears throat> so this was another example of that concept. Don't take it literal if it would involve making something immoral. Let's look at the fifth one. The fifth situation Use the figure of sense if the expression is an obvious figure of speech. Figure of speech. We're talking things like euphemisms, idioms, similes, metaphors, personifications, etc. When you see those things, you definitely don't want to take it literally. For example, when it says in Ruth 2.12, May the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. You shouldn't look at that and say, God has wings! No. It's just a metaphor. 
It's a picture to show God's compassionate and protective qualities, just like a, a bird that covers her young ones with wings. So God is spirit, but the Old Testament writers, New Testament writers will use similes and metaphors, sometimes even describe um, um, the way God is. So we shouldn't, we shouldn't try and take those things literally. And similar with other metaphors and similes in the Bible. We've taken some time to look at that before, so I won't, I won't go too far with that. But let's talk about some of the other things on this list, like euphemisms and idioms. First of all, what is a euphemism? What's a euphemism? If you can't define it, we actually use euphemisms all the time. A euphemism is a word that you substitute for a less nice-sounding word or a less polite-sounding word. For example, we, if we're trying to be polite, we won't say that so-and-so died. We'll replace that phrase with another one. What phrase? He passed away, right? That's more polite. That's a euphemism. The phrase passed away is a euphemism for death. Or, <clears throat> we seldom would express a need like this, I need to urinate. No, we will use a euphemism, like, I need to go, or I need to find a restroom. That also is a euphemism to be more polite. They have euphemisms in the Bible. We'll talk about those in more in just a second. They also have idioms. Now, what's an idiom? This is not a word that is too common. Yeah, Eric. Very good. Idioms are, are another thing that's, that are very common today. It's a phrase that it just, it's come to mean something different than what, it, what the literal words are. Or it might be that certain words always go together. There's no reason for why they do that. They just do. What were you going to say, Francisco? Right. Idioms don't translate from language to language. Usually the idioms are quite different. So example, some other idioms from today. Someone might say that, certain person shoots from the hip. That doesn't mean a person carries a gun around and shoots a certain way. What does it mean? That's right. They're direct. They're straightforward. They're blunt. That's just an idiom that has come to mean that. Or someone might ask you, though I almost never hear this, cat got your tongue? There's no need to look around for a cat when you hear that. But what does it mean? Yeah, it could mean you're not very talkative. What were you going to say, Eric? Yeah, are you speechless? Are you unable to say something? That's what that idiom means. So there are euphemisms and idioms in the Bible too. But as Francisco pointed out, these things don't translate necessarily from language to language, which could be problematic for us. We learn idioms and euphemisms in really one of two ways. You either have to become really familiar with a language, and then you just hear it enough that you're able to figure out what a phrase means from context, or someone has to define those idioms and euphemisms for you. Someone has to say, oh, actually, when, it, when they say it rains cats and dogs, it doesn't mean they're actually raining cats and dogs. It just means it's really heavy rain. So it's true for biblical euphemisms and idioms as well. Now, there are a lot of them, so I couldn't take enough time right now to define them all for you. I don't even know all of them, but I can at least give you some examples of biblical euphemisms and idioms and how they, um, knowing about them will change our interpretation. We certainly need to look at these things figuratively and not literally. For example, Old Testament writers 
instead of saying a man and a woman had sexual relations, they would say what verb? They knew one another. Adam knew his wife. This is a euphemism. And yet, as the pastor pointed out last week, it's an instructive one because it emphasizes the intimacy of a sexual union, full knowledge of the other person. Another example. Instead of saying that someone died in the Old Testament, what would they say happened? Gathered to his fathers or he went with his fathers. I heard uh, another one, but that's actually more common in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, they'll say he breathed his last or he was gathered to his, gathered to his people. Those are euphemisms. But in the New Testament, what would they say? They slept or he fell asleep. This is important for us to recognize as a figurative or piece of figure of speech because some have taken the words literally and come up with the doctrine of soul sleep. That is that when you die, you don't go to fellowship with God immediately, but instead enter a spiritual slumber until the resurrection. Now, they, use other, other, they try to use other supports in the Bible to support this, but it really comes a lot from this mistranslation or this misinterpretation of a euphemism. Another example. Old Testament and New Testament writers often use the phrase answered and said, which in English sounds pretty redundant, right? Answered and said. You could have just said answered or you could have just said said. But that's an idiom from the Hebrew, and it appears a lot. One source I read actually likened the phrase to a pair of quotation marks. It's just an indication of, uh, of somebody speaking. And it does not necessarily mean that a speaker is responding to something that someone else said. So that's something for us to be careful about. It's just an idiom. Or another idiom, Old Testament and New Testament writers often use the phrase, um, so-and-so lifted up his eyes. What does that mean? To lift up one's eyes. I think it can sometimes be used in the context of prayer, but it actually means something different. Lift up one's eyes. Yeah, it just means look. Yeah, if, whenever we read that phrase, and I remember... Um, Particularly, I was looking at that passage in Genesis where it talks about Abraham sacrificing his son Isaac. And he's about to kill Isaac and God says, no, don't do it. And then he explains what was going on. And then it says, Abraham lifted up his eyes and he saw the ram in the bushes. And so I'm imagining the scene. I'm like, oh, he's probably looking down like this and he was so sad and he was about to kill his kid. And then he looks up and, oh, there's the ram. But no, it, it doesn't actually mean that. Because people are lifting up their eyes all the time and it just, it just means look. It's just an idiom that means look. He looked, he saw. So... Don't, don't get confused there. It doesn't mean that people are looking down and then they start looking up or that they're downcast or something like that. It's just an idiomatic expression. So these are things that we want to become more familiar with. The biblical translators, sometimes, because an idiom is, is so different or so difficult, they don't actually translate it literally. They just give us the sense. They give us what the author originally meant, which is not necessarily a bad thing because that's what we, that's what we want. We want to get what, what he originally meant. But even better, some Bibles will give you a little note uh, on the side or at the bottom of the page that indicates what the literal expression was. That's even better, because then you know that there is an idiom there that you can be aware of. But regardless, idioms and euphemisms do appear in the Bible. We don't want to take them literally. So these are the first five situations um, that express the concept of using the literal sense unless there's a strong reason not to do so. Questions or comments before we move on? Yeah, Steve. Are there certain or expressions or even words that would be used so often 
Yeah, I think so. I, I don't. I can't think of other examples besides the ones that I've given you. But answered and said, or uh, lift up his eyes, they appear a lot in the Bible, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. They're very, very common. And if you're not aware of it as an idiom, you probably will try. You probably will attempt to take it literally. I think there are others, but uh, I can't give you more examples right now. Other questions or comments? I'm sure the pastor could fill us in on more more of these, but oh well. <clears throat> So those are the first five situations. The second five, we're going to go over them briefly because they really all deal with the same idea. That is, if there's something in the context that shows you you should take it figuratively, then do so. Here are the second five principles. First, well, this is kind of another summary statement. Use the figurative sense if a literal interpretation goes contrary to the context of the passage. If it doesn't somehow fall under the categories that we've looked at, but the context still shows you it shouldn't be literal, then interpret it figuratively. This is true for the immediate context and also the larger contexts, which the others allude to here. Second one says, use the figurative sense. If a literal interpretation goes contrary to the general character and style of the book, and the third one says, use the figurative sense. If a literal interpretation goes contrary to the plan and purpose of the author, essentially, this is talking about the rest of the book that you're looking at, the context of the rest of the book. Does the literal interpretation fit with the rest of the book and what the author is presenting in it? If not, then you're going to need to look for a figurative interpretation. Also, we should recognize that certain books and genres will employ more figurative language than others, like poetry and prophecy. If you go to the Psalms, you should be expecting more figurative language. However, that does not mean that you should assume everything is figurative language in those books or genres. The last two here refer to the largest context. Use the figurative sense. Use the figurative sense if a literal interpretation involves a contradiction of other scripture, or use the figurative sense if a literal interpretation would involve a contradiction in doctrine. Now, with these situations, we're asking if a literal interpretation fits with the rest of the Bible. The Bible is inerrant. Jesus says scripture cannot be broken. We want to make sure that a literal or figurative interpretation does fit with the, with the rest of what God presents. So, again, with working with all these situations, I'm not necessarily asking you for you to write down each, every single one and have a, this cheat sheet with you when you go look at a passage. It's really those main concepts of, does it make sense literally? Does it make sense with the context? Those are the things that should guide you when it comes to whether to use a figurative interpretation or not. And when you know that something is figurative, you must use the context, among other things. But the context is particularly important for interpreting. Are there still some parts of the Bible that are challenging, even with all these guidelines, as to whether they are figurative or literal? Yes, I think so. But the vast majority of the passages are still pretty straightforward. And we do have the tools even to deal with those challenging passages. At this point, we have more of a handle of working with figurative sections of the Bible, but what about the interpretive process itself? I've talked previously about principles to remember when it comes to different biblical genres, and now also dealing with figurative sections. But what does the process, what does the interpretive process look like? Today I want to present the process to you, define it for you, but we're not actually going to walk through the process until next time. I, I'd like to actually take you through it. In his book, 
Hendricks breaks down the interpretive process into five steps, and they all begin with C. So you can think about it as the five C's of interpretation. Here is the process. Content, context, comparison, culture, and consultation. These are the five steps or the five C's of interpretation. Recall that our method that we've been practicing and that we've learned is observe, interpret, and apply. We must take time to thoroughly look at a text and its context and try to recreate the author's original intent, or before we try and recreate the author's original intention, what he was trying to say to his original audience. You can see the way that our author has outlined the interpretive process, there's a little bit of overlap. We actually see the observation step contained in this process. Allow me to define each step for you. So content, the first one. Content, the first step of the process, is to observe. Read and observe the passage thoroughly. We discussed, we've discussed this in detail before, so there's nothing more I need to say about that right now. On to step two, context. The second step of the process is to read and observe the immediate context of the passage you're looking at, as well as the rest of the book in which that passage appears. What comes before? What comes after? These are questions you want to answer in the context step of the interpretive process. We've talked about this before, though, so again, let me move on. Comparison. In this third step, you are reading and observing the context of the rest of the Bible. You're relating what you've observed and what appears in the content and context portions of the process with the rest of Scripture. And you may say, I can't read the whole Bible every time I want to interpret one passage. How exactly, how exactly am I going to look at the rest of the Bible? An excellent question. We do need a way to find the Bible's passages that are most relevant to the specific section that we are interpreting. How can we find those passages? Yes, if your Bible has cross-references in them, maybe in the middle somewhere, you read a verse, it has other verse references there that deal with the same topic. So that's one way that you can find other relevant passages. How else? Say that again. Very good. Where might you find a concordance? Okay, yes. There are basically two types. There's concordance that you might have in the back of your Bible. Understand this is a very uh, abbreviated concordance. It will give you some of the most important passages or the most um, famous passages that deal with a certain word. So let's say you're looking up the word foot and you look in your concordance and you say, okay, here are all the passages that are important that, that deal with the word, the word foot. But the ones that appear in your Bible... They're not full. They might not have all the words that you want to look up, and they might not have all the instances of that word, which is why a true concordance is even better. Now, those are big, <clears throat> but they're great, because they have every instance of that word that you want to look up. And so let's say you're, you're looking at a passage that has to deal with foot washing. You could look up foot or feet, and you can also look up wash, and it'll give you all the passages that have to do with that. So you can, you can um, compare, and you can look at these other passages and bring that understanding into the one that you're looking at. Some concordances also will tell you the Greek or Hebrew word that is used in that passage, which is even better, because now you're not only looking at, let's say you're looking at a passage that has to do with love, you're not only looking at all the places where it uses the word love, but all the places where it uses that specific word for love, maybe phileo or uh, agapeo. So the concordance will 
tell you that word, and it'll also give you, this is a true concordance, we'll tell you that word and also show you other places that word appears. So concordances are excellent for this comparison step. You can use concordances, you can use um, cross-references, anything else? Obviously, you can use your brain. If you can just remember certain sections, you say, oh, wasn't there a passage somewhere? It wasn't in like Isaiah. So you might be able to find it that way. But also, one resource that I actually use a lot is Bible Gateway, or some similar internet uh, Bible lookup source. We just type in a couple words into the search bar, and then it'll show you all the passages that use that word. Of course, you do have to be a little bit savvy with um, search engines. You might have to think of a synonym for the word that you're looking up because um, you remembered it from the New King James Version, but you're looking it up in the NASB, so you need to, need to be aware of synonyms and, and know enough of the passages that you actually are able to look it up. But Bible Gateway and websites like it, very valuable resource for this comparison step. As Hendrick says, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture. So in the comparison step, you are trying to fill out your understanding by looking at what the rest of the Bible has to say. You may notice that the interpretive process starts very narrowly and then gets wider and wider. This is how we want to operate when we interpret a passage. Notice also that we start with the text of the Bible and not our steady notes or any outside resources. Why do you think that is? Emma. If they are incorrect, and we start with those sources, what might be the issue? Okay, we, we'll, we could just believe the wrong interpretation. What else? Yeah, Brian. There's that as well. We won't, we won't learn how to interpret, which, especially if it is a wrong interpretation, means that we won't be able to properly weigh uh, what that person is saying. Even if we look at a note or look at an outside resource and then go back to the passage, we will have something that's going to color our interpretation. We are, as much as we try and fight against it, we are going to be prone to bias. We say, well, John MacArthur says this, so, or John Piper says this. So. And we would just want to read their interpretation into the, into the passage, even if it might not be correct. Now, those, those are trusted teachers, and they are going to be helpful. But if we really want to um, be able to uh, most effectively interpret something, we want to be able to do the work ourselves first. Then we will take a look at what other interpreters have found. Then we'll actually have a basis to more objectively weigh the arguments of other interpreters. We can say, wait a second, he never looked at the context. Or, hmm, he pointed out something about the Greek words that I didn't see before. But we want to do the work ourselves first. So that's why in the first three steps, we actually start with the Bible and stick with the Bible as much as we can. In the fourth step, though, we begin to look at some other outside resources. Before I go on, questions or comments? Okay, on to the fourth step, culture. The idea in this step is that you are going to use credible, trustworthy resources to recreate any of the background that you couldn't see from the Bible. This would include things like cultural customs, geography, social and economic situations of various groups or cities, things like that. This is not to replace or trump your own study of the Bible. It's just going to add to it. What is, so what are some resources that we could use in this step? I've actually listed 
um, the ones that Hendrix specifically recommends, especially for beginning interpreters. Those would be things like a Bible atlas, a Bible dictionary, and a Bible handbook. And you can probably guess what a Bible atlas is. What kind of details would a Bible atlas fill in for you? Say that again. Places. Can we be more specific? We definitely see maps. We get locations of cities and, and um, dominions. What else might we see in an atlas? Topography. Very good. Terrain. And in some atlases, even climate. It will tell you about those types of things and even how they changed over periods of history. Those things we can find in an atlas, and that's a, an, a resource that we want to consult in this step. Also, Bible dictionaries. Now, I actually brought one. <clears throat> I think my dad gave me this Bible dictionary. Bible dictionary is something we can use, and it is somewhat like a regular dictionary. If there's a word or topic that you do not recognize or that you want to know more about, let's say they start talking about um, uh, Molech, and you don't really know much about that other than it's a deity, you can find that out by looking in a Bible dictionary. But good Bible dictionaries will give you more than a brief definition. Actually, if you... I, I just chose a word at random. If you look at the word firstborn in this dictionary, you actually encounter about 10 paragraphs discussing that term, talking about it historically, talking about it from a language perspective, and talking about it as the, as the Bible deals with that term, firstborn. So Bible dictionaries, a really helpful secondary resource that can fill in some of this, this background information that you wouldn't otherwise know about. The third resource that he recommends is a Bible handbook. Here's an example of a Bible handbook. This is the Handbook of Life and Bible Times. <clears throat> Bible handbook is similar to a Bible dictionary in that it's going to fill in some of those historical language and, and other details from the Bible, but in a few or more focused areas. For example, this book has seven sections. An introduction, people at home, food and drink, industry and commerce, culture and health, warfare, and religion. So unlike a dictionary, which I can look up any specific term, it's going to tell me about it, this is just going to look at a, um, a few areas more in depth. So that's what a Bible handbook is all about. You can also use the Internet as a resource. However, just like you would for any scholastic research project, you have to be careful about the information that you find. It needs to be credible. It needs to be doctrinally sound. There's a lot of it out there. You have to be able to weigh it, you have to be able to discern it. And you might be asking yourself, okay, well, Atlas, Handbook, Dictionary, how do I know which ones I should get? Are there specific titles that you could recommend? Actually, our author, Hendricks, does recommend certain titles. And so if you look in the book, in the back of it, you can see which ones he actually says are good to use, the ones that he uses. And I'm sure you could also talk to the pastor, and he could tell you about some more titles um, and, and other types of resources that you could use in this step. You might also be asking, um, is this a little intense, Dave? I mean, I read the Bible, but do I have to have a dictionary every time I go to read a certain passage? Of course not. However, I do want you to know about these resources so that when you find, when you find something that you want to know more about or when you're, you're wrestling with a particular issue in a passage, you have the tools to be able to come to an accurate understanding on your own and so that you can also weigh what other people say about a certain issue or topic in the Bible. Also, remember that when it comes to Bible study, there are a lot of things you can do that you're not necessarily required to do, 
But the Bible, re the Bible rewards deep study, not just with accuracy, but with enjoyment. So using these resources is something that should benefit you. There is great delight in wrestling with a passage, studying it intensely, coming to that understanding of it, and then putting that understanding into practice. Not merely because there's joy in discovery, but because God is involved. You will get to know more of him through this kind of deep interpretive process. With your own study essentially completed, with this fourth C, we turn to the fifth, consultation. In this step, you are consulting the work of other interpreters of the passage you are looking at. You're seeing what conclusions they came to, what research they did. It is in this step that you turn to your Bible study notes or the commentaries that you have from trusted teachers and interpreters. Now, this step must come last. And it works as an important check to your own study. Does your interpretation line up with the interpretations from other trusted interpreters? That's a good sign. Do you find that you've interpreted differently than most? Then consider, consider the arguments of those other interpreters and see if there's something you missed or did not consider. If few commentators agree with you, that doesn't automatically mean that you are wrong, but it should give you pause. In that situation, you want to make sure that your, your interpretation process has been sound and that you can confidently present your case to, of a certain interpretation based on the evidence that you found in your own study. Because this is the last step, you have a much better chance of accurately weighing what different teachers say about a passage now that you are consulting them because you've done the work yourself. Once you're done with the consultation step and you have a firm grasp of a passage's interpretation, you're still not done. Why not? Yeah, Steve. Well, what do you mean by conclusion? Okay, well, not, not just that. Certainly, as, you're, as you tie all these things together, you, you want to come to that conclusion, to that interpretation. But do we just stop at interpretation? All right, very good. We, we don't want to forget that we, we can't stop with just saying, all right, now I know what it means. No, you've got to put it into practice. You still need to ask the question, how does it work for me? How does it work for others? We still need application. However, these are the steps in the interpretive process that are vital to producing that accurate and life-changing application. So... Please, commit these steps to memory. Content, what does the passage say? Context, what appears in the immediate context and in the rest of the book? Comparison, what are other parts of the Bible that are relevant for understanding this passage? You can use concordance, um, especially to help you there. Culture, what cultural and historic background can I gather on this passage from secondary resources? And then consultation, what conclusions have other interpreters come to on this passage? So, what about an example? Can we see this in action? Well, in a way, we do already see it in action because that's a lot of what preaching is. Preaching, that is exposition, is really just an explanation of exegesis, that is, the interpretive process. So that's why you'll notice in the pastor's sermons, he'll mention observations about important parts of the text. He'll mention grammar, mention Greek words, mention the context, other relevant passages of scripture, cultural background, and words from other interpreters. Still, a pastor only shows you part of his work. He's, he's um, 
presenting what would be relevant for us to hear, but there's a lot more that goes into it. So can we see that process? Well, I hope next time to actually do that with you. We'll go through a certain passage of the Bible and try to interpret it, going through each one of these steps. Also, if we have time next time, we'll talk about pitfalls of interpretation, that is, common errors to avoid. Any final questions or comments before we end? Yeah, Yelena. Absolutely, yes. That's a very good point, um, Yelena, and one that we always do want to keep in mind, that we do need the Spirit to help us understand. That's one thing that um, even the biblical writers prayed for. I think of David especially, very notably says, show me wondrous things in your law. He recognized that he needed God to do that. So not only having that attitude of dependence, but making sure that we don't have any hardness of heart, any sin, unrepented sin in our lives that would, even if we did find the interpretation, cause us not to recognize it because we don't want to. That's a good point. Any other comments or questions? All right, well, let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you, God. Thank you, God, for your word. Thank you, Lord, for making it understandable. And thank you, God, for giving us just abundant resources, especially in our day and age, to be able to um, interpret even the really difficult parts. Lord, I pray that you would show us more of your word, that our hearts would be uh, repentant before you. If there's anything, any idols that we cherish or any sins, Lord, in our lives, that I pray that you would allow us, give us repentance of those things by your graces or by your grace. I pray, Lord, that we would be able to enjoy you and be able to understand you by your Spirit. Thank you for this time. Bless the, the food that we're about to eat, and bless the rest of the service and the singing and the and the, and the proclamation of your word. I pray this in your name. Amen.